0: To stay informed of the latest updates, please follow at Germaniapod on Twitter and Instagram. You can always reach me directly by emailing gdupodcast at gmail.com. Hello, welcome to Germania, Divided and United. Episode 1.17, The End of the Tetrarchy. In the last episode, we covered the rise of Constantius Chlorus to the rank of Caesar in Diocletian's Tetrarchy as he reunited the northwestern Roman provinces and battled against the Franks and the Alamanni. By the time Diocletian and Maximian abdicated the Imperium to go into a peaceful retirement in 305, the Franks had a new king who was allied to Constantius and the Rhine frontier at this point was relatively stable. Constantius took advantage of this stability to move his imperial court from Trier and Gaul to Britannia, setting up in the capital of Britannia Inferior at Eboracum, the modern city of York. Eboracum was a critical strategic city for controlling Britannia, as it was a major crossroad of cities connecting east and west, north and south. While trade from Gaul was primarily imported through Londinium in the south, Trade from Germania coming out of the Rhine Delta was generally routed through Iboricum. Constantius was married to Theodora, the daughter of Maximian, in 289, part of the process of joining the imperial college that was formalized when he was named Caesar in 293. The two of them had six children together. We will have cause to deal with one of the heirs of Constantius and Theodora down the line, their grandson Julian. But of more immediate importance was Constantius' son from a previous relationship, a man who needs no introduction, Flavius Valerius Constantinus, known to scholars of Western Europe as Constantine the Great and to the Eastern Orthodox Church as Saint Constantine. As I was originally plotting out my coverage of Germania during the Roman period, My thought was that it would make more sense to skip Constantine and really cover his reign during my coverage of early Christianity, as he is so closely tied to the transition of Christianity from weird pseudo-Judaic cult to dominant religion across the Mediterranean and all of Europe. But the years of the Constantinian dynasty was a transitional period for the Roman world for more reasons than just the religious transformation. And so we are going to cover the life of Constantine twice now for the changes in the secular relationship between rome and the germanic tribes and then next season we'll discuss his role in the evolution or um, intelligent design of the christian church constantine's mother was a woman named helena born to a lower class family in the greek city of drapana bithynia in the modern nation of turkey the city was later renamed helenopolis in her honor It is not clear if Helena was actually married to Constantius, or if she was his mistress, but either way, she was pushed aside when Constantius needed to marry Theodora in the interest of his career. At this point, Constantine would have been roughly 17 years old. His father marrying another woman, and a woman who was part of the imperial family no less, could have been very dangerous for Constantine. The filial bonds that Maximian was hoping to form with Constantius did not flow through to this now illegitimate son, and certainly the Romans loved the evil stepmother trope as much as anyone. Who knows what Theodora was whispering to his father when they were alone. But in the end, Constantius' support for his eldest child never wavered. And given the massive age difference between Constantine and his half-siblings, they ended up as loyal supporters of his reign, rather than rivals. The relationship with Constantine's own children, however, was more complicated. Constantine was not around for his father's exploits in Gaul during the 290s, as he was attached to the court of Diocletian and spent over a decade in the East. The experience was certainly educational, as he saw how Diocletian was reorganizing the entire governmental structure of Rome. After Diocletian abdicated, however, Constantine's life in Nicomedia became more uncertain. Previously, he was the son of the Western Caesar, with the opportunity to learn from the senior Augustus in the East. Diocletian's position was secure, and he did not have to worry about Constantius as a rival for power. With the imperial turnover, Constantius was now Augustus of the Western Empire, and the court at Nicomedia was taken over by the new Eastern Augustus, Gaius Galerius Maximianus. Galerius had been made the Eastern Caesar at the same time Constantius was made the Western Caesar, but he is much better known now as one of Constantine's great foils. With the eldest son of his nominal imperial colleague kept as a glorified hostage in his court, Constantine was a great source of leverage for Galerius over Constantius. Constantine already felt slighted by the fact that the turnover of the imperial college had not created room for him. In 305, Constantine was one of two imperial sons. The other was Maximian's son, Marcus Aurelius Maxentius. Both felt like they had a claim to become a new Caesar at the time of Diocletian and Maximian's abdication. However, when the time came to name two new Caesars to serve as colleagues with Constantius and Galerius, the Tetrarchy went outside the family, naming Maximinius Daza as Caesar of the East and Valerius Severus as Caesar of the West. Some accounts hold that this was done at the direction of Diocletian, who wanted to establish as precedent that the new members of the tetrarchy should be unrelated to any of the existing members, as a way to avoid nepotism and to make sure future rulers were selected on the basis of merit. Others hold that Diocletian was open to naming one or both of Constantine and Maxentius as Caesars, But Galerius was able to manipulate the elder statesmen and lobbied hard for two men he knew to be loyal to him. Either way, Constantine and Maxentius were left out in the cold. Now that Galerius and Constantius were elevated as the new Augusti, Constantius immediately began sending letters to the east asking for his son to be released from service so he could come to aid him in the west. Constantine as well began asking, begging, demanding, and pleading to be allowed to return to his father's side. The official story holds that one night when Glarius was quite drunk, Constantine again came to ask for permission to return to the West, and that in his irritation, Galerius told Constantine to go do whatever he wanted. When he awoke the next morning and cleared his head, Galerius decided it would be prudent to summon Constantine to come before him so he can clarify that whole do-whatever-you-want statement. To his horror, he learned that Constantine had taken the command to do whatever he wanted as permission to leave Nicomedia, and he had set off that night without even bothering to pack. As Constantine raced west, he crippled the horses at each post he passed through. Constantine rode over 1,600 miles, nearly 2,600 kilometers, from Nicomedia across the Bosphorus, through the mountains past Nisus to the Danube River, through the Alpine Passes, and across the plains of Champagne, before reuniting with his father at the port of Boulogne, just as Constantius was preparing to cross the channel and relocate his court to Aboricum. The soldiers they led at the garrison included the Roman Ninth Legion, primarily drawn from the Romanized British tribes, as well as Alamanni auxiliaries led by a chieftain, Crocho. They had joined Constantius some time after his fighting against their tribe at the end of the 3rd century, and served as mercenaries, loyal to the man who paid them. The father and son got to enjoy each other's company for about a year before Constantius died in the summer of 306. That year was focused around transferring the ideas, confidence, and influence that Constantius had spent the past decade and a half building up to Constantine, who would have the energy and strength to put those tools to good use. As G.P. Baker says in his biography of Constantine, The old man had forged the weapon, the young man was able to use it, and during their conversations that year, Constantius must have inducted his son into its arrangements and purposes, its system and operation. Upon his father's death, the troops that had been under the command of Constantius immediately proclaimed Constantine as Augustus. He had the loyalty of the troops in Britannia, Gaul, and Germania, as well as the tribal auxiliaries from the Franks and Alamanni that his father had recruited as mercenaries or resettled into the empire. Over the three months following his ascension to the imperial college, Constantine relocated from Britannia to the mouth of the Rhone River and along the alpine frontier in Gaul to put himself in a better position to defend his new claim to the throne. Baker estimates that the movement of that number of troops in that short a period of time from Britannia to the European continent was not to be matched until August 1914. The army highlighted the diversity of the Roman world, with British legions, German auxiliaries, Rhineland cavalry, and Asiatic bowmen. While his army was moving southeast, couriers continued to take messages back and forth between Constantine and Galerius. Constantine let Galerius know that his father had died and his army had proclaimed Constantine as Augustus. Galerius was furious about this development, as the army was usurping his authority as the senior Augustus. In the end, the two reached a compromise that admitted Constantine into the Tetrarchy as the new Caesar of the West, while Valerius Severus was promoted to the Western Augustus. This accord only held until the end of October. At that point, Maxentius was living down in Rome. Since Gallienus set up the mobile cavalry in Milan 40 years earlier, Rome had continued to lose political power and relevance. Milan, Trier, Nicomedia, Antioch, Alexandria, many locations across the empire had started to eclipse the Eternal City, as emperors had to spend more time on the frontiers battling German and Persian enemies. In an effort to revitalize both the Senate as a political organization and Maxentius as an imperial candidate, Maxentius was declared Augustus, a direct challenge to the legitimacy of the Tetrarchy. This began a series of civil wars that didn't end until Constantine asserted control over the Eastern Empire in 324. Galerius ordered the western Augustus, Severus, to march his army into Italia and crush the usurper. The ensuing conflict had demonstrated that sometimes, it's not what you know, it's who you know. For Severus, he really didn't know anyone. He was made Caesar and then elevated to Augustus due to his loyalty to Galerius. He had no ties to Rome or the Western Empire, so he had no natural base of support. Maxentius, meanwhile, was the son of Maximian, Hercules reincarnate, the popular co-ruler of the past two decades. He was able to secure Constantine's neutrality by giving him his sister Fausta as a new bride, which further strengthened Constantine's hold on power. When Maximian showed up in Rome, the fact that Severus was leading an army that had previously served the great general became a major liability. Taking what troops he could, Severus was forced to retreat to Ravenna. While Ravenna was protected by surrounding swamps that made it difficult to besiege, and could be resupplied easily by sea, Severus calculated that it was only a matter of time before someone in his entourage, whose loyalty laid more with Maximian, would betray the city into his hands. After securing a promise from Maximian that he would not be harmed and would be able to go into a quiet exile, Severus surrendered. Unfortunately, the words of reassurance from Maximian provided far less protection than Severus had hoped for as once the Augustus was in hand, Maximian had him executed. Now that Maximian had come out of retirement to aid his son, he was ready to reassert himself at the top of the political hierarchy. To that end, in front of the assembled soldiers, he denigrated his son and attempted to wrestle the purple cloak off of Maxentius. While the soldiers had loyalty to their old general, They liked their new general quite a bit more, as he had paid them all massive bonuses to celebrate his ascension to power. Realizing he had overplayed his hand, Maximian had to flee to the east. In 308, with Maximian now back in the game, Galerius decided to call a council of the original Tetrarchs, minus the deceased Constantius, to reach some kind of settlement. Diocletian convinced Maximian to go back into retirement while Galerius nominated his close childhood friend, Valerius Licinianus Licinius, as the new Augustus of the West. Constantine would remain the Western Caesar. Galerius would remain Augustus of the East and Senior Augustus, with Maximinius Deza as his Caesar. However, Constantine continued to refer to himself as Augustus, and from this point he would not recognize any of the other Tetrarchs as superior to him and his dominions. This agreed-upon settlement posed a problem for Maximian. Even in retirement, he was not really welcome anywhere in the empire. The trick he had used to capture and execute Severus made him unpopular in the east. His attempt to usurp his son made him unpopular in Italia. In the end, he took up refuge with his new son-in-law and came to Constantine's court at Arles. At the beginning, this probably seemed like a good idea to Constantine. As he had the prestige of hosting an ex-Augustus, and given the status of the relationship between his wife's father and brother, he may have been able to spin himself as the true son of Hercules. Unfortunately, Maximian really couldn't handle being out of power. In 309, Constantine led his soldiers to the Rhine frontier for some minor campaigning against Germanic tribes who still resisted the rule of the allied Germans. It was such a minor campaign that we likely would not have any record of it, except for the events that unfolded while Constantine was away. The broad strokes of the story seemed to be that Constantine had been out of contact for some period of time, and no one in Arles had heard an update from him for longer than they expected. Maximian quickly spread the word that this was because Constantine was dead, and that to ensure stability and security in Gaul, he was reasserting his imperial powers. Everyone was shocked by the news of Constantine's sudden death, but no one wanted a power struggle or a new ruler imposed on them by Galerius, so they were willing to accept the return of Maximian. However, when this news reached a still very much alive Constantine, he gathered his best troops and sped toward Maximian. Maximian retreated to Marseille, with the soldiers loyal to him. Marseille was a defensible city with easy access to overseas trade, and had a good number of people who were still supporters of Maximian. However, most of the army was now loyal to Constantine, and when he showed up with his army, Maximian decided it would be better to surrender than wait to be betrayed. He found himself in the same position that Severus had been in two years earlier. If he had the complete loyalty of the citizens and soldiers of the city, he could hold out indefinitely, but the fact that he didn't, and he knew he didn't, led him to surrender. Fortunately for Maximian, Constantine did not want to use the same trick to execute his father-in-law. I'm no relationship expert, but my understanding is that wives tend to get upset when you murder their relatives. However, now that he was completely disgraced and politically marginalized, Maximian died by suicide shortly after his failed rebellion. The settlement of 308 had left Maxentius as the odd man out once again, as Galerius had him declared an enemy of the state. However, with the loyalty of the Italian legions, the grain supplies coming from North Africa, and the protection of the newly built Aurelian walls surrounding Rome, there was very little anyone could do about him. He had an accord with Constantine, and the previous attempts to invade Italia had ended in disaster and retreat. Licinius sat up on the Danube frontier and never made a move against the usurper. It would be left to Constantine to finally break his alliance with Maxentius and depose him. Once Maximian was dead, Constantine began spreading the rumor that it was not the humiliation of his failed coup that had pushed the old man over the edge. Even after being so generously pardoned by Constantine, Maximian had once again plotted against his son-in-law's life. Furthermore, he was in contact with Maxentius during this whole time and the father and son were aligned on the conspiracy. It was only uncovered when Maximian tried to recruit Fausta to the plot, and Constantine's noble wife sided with her husband over her father and confessed everything. It was only with this scheme exposed that Maximian chose to end his life. Parts of this story are certainly plausible. Maximian pretty clearly hated being sidelined, and would have done anything to regain the power he had enjoyed not even five years earlier. No emperors had ever gone into retirement before, and the joint retirement of the Augusti was clearly Diocletian's idea. Still, the idea that Maximian and Maxentius were conspiring together is harder to believe. The whole story feels like propaganda that Constantine was using to eventually sow the seeds of war with his brother-in-law down in Rome. It was obvious by now that the Tetrarchy had only worked before, because it was really the reign of Diocletian with his three very special lieutenants. Now that there were no natural bonds of loyalty or deference between the four men, it was completely falling apart. Plus, the continued rule of Maxentius in Rome hurt the credibility of the entire operation. Finally, in 311, following the death of Galerius, Maxentius declared war on Constantine to avenge his father's murder. In response, Constantine reached out to Licinius to form an alliance, giving him his sister Constantia in marriage. With two enemies to his north, Maxentius was forced to garrison both the northwestern and northeastern routes into Italia. In 313, Constantine finally defeated Maxentius at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, one of the most important events in the history of the western world. We are going to spend a lot more time with this battle next season. But for now, the important thing to note is that it left Constantine in command of the entire Western Empire. Following his victory, Licinius was able to travel to Milan to meet with Constantine and formalize their bonds by marrying Constantia. Soon enough, Licinius would defeat Maxiministaza in the east, and the two men would rule the empire together for the next 11 years, as brothers-in-law and bitter rivals. So, for our purposes, the critical facts as they stood in 313 were... number 1. Rome was divided into Eastern and Western empires, ruled by two men who had allied together to achieve their respective positions, who were bound together as family through marriage, and who therefore did not trust each other and would constantly look for ways to undermine each other. Number 2. The Western Augustus, Constantine, enjoyed good relationships with the tribes along the Rhine River, relationships that he inherited from his father. These strong relationships were based on the fact that a Constantine rewarded their service with pay and or land, and b when they had fought against Constantine and his father, they lost badly. 3. The domains of the Eastern Augustus, Licinius, began in the Central Empire, Illyria and Macedonia, and included the Danube frontier. He had much more familiarity with those tribes, and when the time came, he would augment his army with extensive Gothic mercenaries. Next time, Constantine and Licinius, aka the Franks and the Goths, would battle to reunify that empire once and for all. I don't want to spoil it for you, but there is a reason you have never heard of Licinius the Great. <laughs>